over there near the window, uh, but she would love to find you following the service and just give you any details that you might need. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Our time together this morning will be much more enjoyable if you keep a copy of God's Word open throughout the duration of the sermon, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we should have one underneath your seat or underneath the seat in front of you. Just feel free to grab one of those, and if you don't have a copy, you can call your own. Uh, Please feel free to just take that home with you. That's a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and study and learn more about Jesus Christ. John begins around page 886-ish, and John 4 is 888. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the large numbers are chapter numbers and small numbers are verse numbers. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in John chapter 4, verse 43. Let me just reiterate what happened twice in the service today. Uh, When I'm done reading, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and your response is, and that doesn't make you Catholic. Uh, Sometimes we think that some of the liturgical elements like that make us Catholic, but that's not what that makes us. It makes us thankful that we have a copy of God's word in our own language that we can read and study, and believers throughout history have been thankful that they've had a copy of God's Word to read and to study so that they can know Jesus Christ. Begin reading John chapter 4, verse 43. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself for here speaking to us today. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday... At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we ask, Father, that you would help us now as we turn our attention to it. We pray, Father, that you would protect us from distraction. We know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are studying. We pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word. If we are a Christian, that we would be driven into deeper faith and deeper repentance. And if we are not a Christian here today, that we might be driven into first-time repentance and first-time faith. Father, we ask that you would do the good work of redeeming grace for all who are here, who are not yet Christians, that you would cause them to be born again, removing the heart of stone and inserting the heart of flesh. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Last year, we took our family to Niagara Falls. It was beautiful and awe-inspiring, though I am confident the only thing my kids remember or appreciated was one burger place that we went to. But one of the neatest aspects of our time there were the stories that they tell you while you're at the falls of all of the people who have done stunts throughout the years, people like Charles Blondin. He was amazing. He was an acrobat. He walked on tightropes, and eventually he walked a tightrope that stretched the quarter of a mile spanning the entire breadth of Niagara Falls. The stunning feat actually made Blondin famous in the summer of 1859, but one crossing was not enough. Over time, he walked 160 feet above the falls several times back and forth between Canada and the United States, as huge crowds on both sides would watch him with shock and wonder. But he didn't always do it the same way. On one occasion, he crossed in a sack. On another occasion, on stilts. Another time, on a bicycle. Another time, he carried a stove, sat down in the middle, cooked an omelet, and ate it before finishing. He even carried his manager on his back at one point. It's hard to know which instance was most impressive, but on one occasion, Blondin walked a tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow, and after pushing the wheelbarrow successfully across, he wanted to solicit some audience participation. Do you believe that I can safely cross? Of course, the crowd shouted. Do you believe that I could take a person safely across? Of course, they shouted again. Do you believe that I could take that person in this wheelbarrow safely across? Of course, they all exclaimed. Then he asked, who will get in? None did. The thundering sound of the pounding water kept all of the onlookers at bay. They said that they believed, but they didn't entrust themselves to that belief. Do you? Let me ask you here this morning, gathered with all of these believers singing the way that we just did. Does the way that you live depend on your beliefs being true? John has told us that he has written his gospel in such a way that the Christian's life must depend on the teachings of this gospel being true. He says it at the end of John's gospel, if you're taking notes, in chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So from John 2 to John 4, from Cana to Cana, we've seen Jesus interacting with people about their beliefs. And careful readers of John's gospel will have noticed at this point who Jesus has been interacting with in each of these meetings. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel in chapter 3. Someone that everyone would have thought would be on the inside of God's redemptive plan. But John teaches us, at least at this point in his gospel narrative, is on the outside, even though his life looks all buttoned up. Then John the Baptist, the final prophet of the old covenant, who rejoiced, not that he got to play a part, but that everything was about Jesus anyways. And the Samaritan woman, an inbred Jew, a half-Gentile whose life was an absolute wreck, someone so scandalous that everyone would have thought, she's definitely on the outside, but John teaches us, was on her way to becoming an insider in God's kingdom. And now this Gentile official, a Roman who works for the government 
oppressing the Jewish people. Someone no one would have thought would be coming to a Jewish man for help. But when he does, he learns that life-giving faith believes. Three points will frame our time together this morning. The official, the man, the father. Notice first, the official who seeks a sign. Look with me again in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Gana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus has little regard for his popularity throughout the Gospels. He's not building a ministerial portfolio or a platform. He's not trying to win an election or begin a promotional tour for this new religion that he's starting. Still, in the early days of his ministry, Jesus is treated more like a celebrity and less like a savior, more like an attraction than the Messiah more like a philanthropist doing good for people rather than the Son of God. So the text says, verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, the very feast that he had been at in chapter 2. If you have your Bible, just flip back a page to chapter 2, verse 23, the beginning of our section, now to the end of our section, John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Galileans welcomed him, and the crowds greeted him. Everyone was thronging to Jesus, but Jesus was aware that the populace was fickle. So, verse 24 of chapter 2, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And he says now in chapter uh, 4, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is aware that the populace coming to him is fickle, that they want to be a part of the show, just like any of us would want to be a part of the show if someone was doing the astonishing and stunning things that Jesus was doing. Jesus knew that they were more interested in what they could get from the signs rather than in what the signs meant about who he was and why he had come. And yet he returns, verse 43, to Galilee anyways. A native of Nazareth, about three and a half miles from the Gentile administrative center of Galilee, Jesus returns to where he spent the majority of his life in ministry. But more specifically, John tells us, verse 46, he returns to Cana in Galilee, approximately 50 miles away from Sychar, where he met the woman in Samaria. And John reminds us of the significance of this particular place. Verse 46, this is where Jesus made the water into wine a sign that had showed everyone the power of Jesus in order that they might believe in him. And while in that same region, John tells us a Roman official in service to Herod Antipas, verse 46, was at Capernaum, whose son was ill. Capernaum was no new place to Jesus. 
Soon after he began his public ministry, Jesus had relocated there. So if we go back and read the other gospels, we'll find in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now approximately 16 miles northeast at Cana, there's a thriving fishing village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which became Jesus' base of operation for all of his Galilean ministry. Galilean ministry, Jerusalem ministry. But Jesus doesn't just tell us of this royal official's problem. He tells us of his plea, verse 47. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. John's description teaches us certain things about this official, about this nobleman. He's not a Jew. He works for the Romans. And in so doing, John teaches us that though Jesus has taught us already that salvation comes from the Jews, it is not exclusively for the Jews, as evidenced by this Gentile man now coming to the Jewish Jesus for help. It seems that all that he knows about Jesus at this point is that he's a Galilean miracle worker, and he's desperate. How desperate is this man? He's a Roman nobleman who approaches a peasant Jew for help. The situation is so hopeless for this official, a nobleman in service to the mighty Roman empire that dominates the world, an official in service to Herod Antipas, that he's powerless. His son is ill. There's no resources that are going to help, and there's nothing that he can do about it. You can almost imagine how desperate he would be as he stammers, verse 47. He, my son, is at the point of death. Most of us, most of you probably gathered in this room today thinking that death is a long way off for you and for your loved ones. It's years ahead. It never comes into our mind. We tell ourselves every day that we have time, that our loved ones have times. But as we're confronted with death, the death of our loved ones as it nears, and time seems to speed up, we want more moments. We want moments that become minutes. We want minutes that become hours. We want hours that become days and weeks and months as time runs through our hands like sand. For any of us who have seen those that we love and close to us die, we plead with God in those moments for more time, especially when we know that they're at the point of death, just like this nobleman did coming to Jesus, coming to anybody who would give him more time. And what parent here today would not do that? The same as this man. What person here, if this was their loved one, would not do this if their loved one was in danger? From the most hardened skeptic among us in the room to the most stoic person who everybody thinks is flat emotionally, to the one who considers himself an agnostic to all things religious, to the one who actually maybe calls himself an atheist here today. When faced with death and suffering of a precious loved one, all of us would gladly plead for an act of the divine to do something in their behalf so that we would not lose what is most valuable to us, a person that we love, someone that we care about. So John tells us that this desperate man travels 16 miles to find this wonder worker Jesus Why? Verse 47. He went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. 
Friends, you don't have to be a Christian here today to want Jesus to fix your life. You don't have to be regenerate to want a miracle worker to heal your child. But that's exactly how most of us approach Jesus, isn't it? We want Jesus to fix our life that we've messed up or that we think is messed up because of what other people have done. We want him to let those that we love live a little bit longer so that we can enjoy them a little bit more. We want a miracle, but not the maker. But John tells us that Jesus can use life's most desperate moments to reach a person for all of eternity. And that is clearly seen by this pagan official's desperate plea for the life of his own son. The official travels from Capernaum and Cana in hope that Jesus will heal his son for he was at the point of death. The condition that is so serious in the passage that it's mentioned three times. Verse 47, he was at the point of death. Verse 49, before my child dies. Verse 51, his son was recovering. The boy's condition is so serious and the Roman official so desperately wanted help that he comes to Jesus. And that, friends, is exactly where you must go when you need help, to Jesus. But he may not say what you want to hear. As the official comes to Jesus, the text is almost strident. It's unbelievable in his description of his boldness. He comes up, he asks. He has pretense and boldness. Heal my child, he's desperate, and he seeks out for Jesus for help, asking him, come and do what I cannot do for my child. Heal my son. But Jesus' response is not quite what we would expect from Jesus, meek and mild, is it? It seems harsh, doesn't it? He says, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Is Jesus being rude? Perhaps Jesus is being harsh. He forgot that he needed to be nice to people. Is this the heart of God towards people? Is this how we expect Jesus to respond to people in their darkest hours and their most desperate moments? Perhaps you're here today and you feel that this is how Jesus has responded to you when you've reached out to him in prayer. Where is Jesus' compassion in this moment? We're talking about the life of a child, the least of these, one of the innocents that everybody knows should be allowed to live. Jesus is confronting a mentality that sees him as a miracle worker. And his statement is a challenge, not only to the royal official, but to also to all of the Galilean people and to you and to me. The you in verse 48 is plural because they were all in danger, just like we are all in danger of being so enthralled with Jesus's miraculous power that we fail to see that the miracles, the signs are intended to point us to faith in him. And life-giving faith believes This is why Jesus says, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is not trying to cut a deal with the royal official. Jesus is confronting a universal problem among people. We find ourselves in desperation for God, and Jesus says that our desire is to see with our eyes, and that evidence is what is actually real in our hearts. The official wanted a sign, not a savior. Friends, does that describe what you want from Jesus today? A sign, not the Savior. You want a relationship or a job. You want money or a kid. You want to graduate or success. You want opportunity and not challenge. You want a sign. Let me know that you're real. 
but you don't really want the Savior who might require more from you than you want to give and expect what you would not want to lose. And Jesus is saying that the signs and the wonders accompanying his ministry are not theatrics to be marketed. They're not something to be bartered with that we can flash around at Christmas for all the world to see. They're not something to be manipulated. They are for the purpose of soliciting faith in God by those who see them. Jesus is saying that his works, what he is doing, what he performs are to generate faith in the unseen work of God. And they're based not primarily in his healing ministry, but rather on his word of power. Temporary healing is not the goal of faith in Jesus Christ. Momentary satisfaction is not the goal of faith in Jesus Christ. Having your life's burdens taken away is not the goal of faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says our desperation when faced with our greatest needs is actually a moment when we will see the symptom of our greatest need. And life-giving faith in Jesus in those moments believes. The official seeks a sign. Notice second, the man. Look at verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The official pleads with Jesus a second time. He won't be easily turned away. He's not going to be deterred. While Jesus is in front of him, he's going to continue to persist. He's not going to give up. So he pleads a second time to accompany him home before his son passes. In panic, verse 49, he cries out, Sir, come down before my child dies. In light of the child's desperate condition, he thinks that if Jesus doesn't come now, his son will die and there's no power on earth that can bring him back to life. Why? Because that's how everybody else in the Bible works. Elijah has to show up and see the person and touch him with his staff. Elisha has to lay on the person. Every other prophet has to be there to do something miraculous. So the man thinks, I've heard stories of wonder workers. They have to be there to make something happen. Jesus has to come now. So he begs, come, come, please come. This man doesn't know the Torah from the Ten Commandments. But when he's confronted with death, he knows that there's no other power except God's power that has the power to overturn it. So he pleads with Jesus, please help, come. And did Jesus do what he asked even when he begged? No. Verse 50, go, your son will live. The man is frantic and desperate, but Jesus speaks five words, go, your son will live. A statement that requires from the man an exercise of faith. The man is trying to compel Jesus to act. Come with me, see my son, learn about the situation, help. But Jesus speaks and his words force the man to make a decision. Go, your son will live. I want you to try to imagine for a moment the standoff here. And just try to think for a moment how intense the situation had to be for this man. If I leave without Jesus, my boy dies. 
But Jesus says, my boy whom he has not seen or touched and cannot name will live. What do I need to do? What would you do in that situation? Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man demonstrates his faith by returning home. He demonstrates the kind of faith that Jesus is seeking throughout John's gospel. If you turn to the end of John's gospel, you'll see in chapter 20, verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The man demonstrates the kind of faith that Jesus is seeking and in so doing learns that Jesus' word is as good as Jesus' presence. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Cana is in the Galilean hills and Capernaum is down below sea level on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So as the man travels back down to Capernaum, he encounters servants along the way who report that his son has been healed at 1 p.m. on the previous day, the very time that Jesus had promised him healed. Friends, Jesus' word is as good as his promise. Do you believe that? And his word is as good as his presence. Do you believe that? It's very hard to believe that. Which is why the man wanted Jesus to come. And he wanted Jesus to see his son. And he wanted Jesus to touch his son. But he had to learn to listen to Jesus' word and know that Jesus' word is as good as his presence. It's hard for us to believe that, which is why we so quickly turn away from his word. And I would dare say that many of us are often looking for life solution in everywhere but God's word. We're trying to figure out how to solve our problems outside of his word. We're trying to figure out how to make our situation better outside of his word, to manipulate the situation and control the situation and maneuver people around. But by diverting his gaze away from the immediate distress of the moment, Jesus begins to point this man to his more ultimate need. The man needed to trust the word of Jesus. Friends, rescue from death comes only one way and one way only through the word of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here today and you're in sorrow, perhaps you feel that your world is caving in and the holiday season is nothing but a reminder of all of the things that are not and did not happen or people who are gone that you wish were still here. Perhaps you've lost someone even recently This text might be even a flashpoint of memory, causing people grief. Where is Jesus when I needed him? You need to understand what Jesus is teaching you about your desperation and need. He's saying that the signs and the wonders that dot the biblical landscape of the Bible are but sign posts that point away from themselves toward him. They point away from themselves toward his word and his power over death. Jesus did not go with the man. He did not do what the man wanted him to do. And friend, he might not do what you want him to do. And it might feel that he is not with you. But he did something better. Something better than the man wanted. Something better than the man could have imagined. Something greater than the man could have asked for. He spoke a word of power to this man and it became a sign that lives to this very hour. The carpenter from Nazareth has power over death. He alone can work miracles over death. 
Jesus did not need to see the young man. He knew of his condition. He knew how far down death stairway he was. And the words Jesus spoke miles away from that boy were immediately transformative for his life. Jesus spoke and it was done. And friends, if you're here today and you know little of the Bible, all of this might sound very strange to you. Christianity might sound very strange to you. And as you read the Bible, you will see this time and time again. The emphasis in the word of God is on the word of God, on the words of Jesus. Because when Jesus speaks, God mercifully speaks to us. When God speaks, life is created. When God speaks, there is authority. When God speaks to us through his written word, there is power. This is why John would say later in this same gospel, in chapter six, verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. God speaks with power through his word. And in John 4, Jesus sends his word to heal, proving that he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the savior of the world, that he is the one that everyone has been longing for, proving that he has power, and not simply power, power over death, proving that he is worthy of our faith. And life-giving faith believes the word of Jesus. Do you believe the words of Jesus? Are you living your life as if you believe the words of Jesus and your life depends upon those words being true? Look at what happened after Jesus stated these words to this man. The man, verse 50, believed. And verse 53, believed. He believed. In John 4, 49, he had not yet heard the words of Jesus and he did not yet believe. But in John 4, 50, he had heard the word and everything changes, everything is different, he believes. Just like the woman at the well. Before the words of Jesus, she's in a theological argument. She's trying to maneuver around him. She's being evasive in the conversation. She's trying to hide her sin. But after Jesus' word, she is completely different. Come and see, can this be the Christ? The man came to see and realize that this Jesus is no ordinary man. This Jesus has power over life and death, and only God has power like that. He believed. Friend, do you believe this morning? You can believe today. You can believe by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. But the question for us is, why would you need to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus? Because the Bible teaches that you are a sinner. And your sin has so devastated and wrecked your life that it has separated you from God. Your sin has so separated you from God that you cannot have fellowship with God. You cannot see God. You cannot make your way through the world accurately or wisely. You think you know yourself, as our pastor Renee said earlier. But the reality is, is you don't know yourself. You deceive yourself all of the time, thinking that you're more innocent than you are, better than you are, doing right things when you're actually doing wrong things. The Bible says that you are a sinner through and through, a sinner whose sin has devastated their life and your sin will send you to hell. But friend, the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to go to hell. You can repent or turn away from that sin and you can place your faith, that is all of your trust in this Jesus, this man who is the Messiah, the savior of the world. And by believing in him, you can have everlasting life. 
You can have everlasting life because he did something for you that you can never do for yourself. He atoned for your sin and not just some of your sins, all of your sins. When he died on the cross, his sin bearing death brings you life. And friend, you can have that life today. You can trust in this Christ today. You can be born again today. Let me ask you, what prevents you from being born again today? Is it that people here think that you're already a Christian? Friend, I can assure you that nothing would make people happier today than to see people who they thought was a Christian but is not a Christian come to faith in Christ today. Or maybe it's your sin. Sin that you don't talk about to people in this room that you think no one knows about and you don't want to share. Friends, I can assure you that no matter what sin you've committed, you have not and cannot sin yourself outside of the reach of God's mercy in Christ. Friends, come to Christ. Trust in this Christ. And if you'd like to learn more about that, I'm gonna be at that tunnel following the service. There'll be pastors at each of the exits in the sanctuary here. We would love to tell you more about this Jesus. But believer, what would you believe anyways if you already believe? The life-giving faith of a Christian believes in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It believes that he descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. It believes that he ascended into heaven and is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It believes that from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. It believes in the Holy Spirit. It believes in the universal church. It believes in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. It believes these unbelievable promises. Friends, what is comforting you today? Is it what you know you're gonna get next Monday? Or is it these beliefs? And are you living as if your life depended on those beliefs being true? As this man made his way home, others met him with joy to tell him this wondrous news. And notice the interesting question that he asks them to show that he has true faith. Verse 52, when did he begin to live again? The boy had been dying, but now the man knows he's living. They said, verse 52, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. His life-giving faith believed, and that belief became sight, but not right away. The official who seeks a sign, the man who trusts the son, notice third, the father. Look at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Notice John's description of the nobleman in the narrative and how it progresses. He goes from being the official in verse 49 to the man in verse 50 to the father in verse 53. He's humanized. The father left Cana after Jesus pronounced his son well, not the nobleman. The father left confident that the Savior had spoken. The father left trusting and trusting his son to the one who had spoken. And apparently, he trusted that Savior so much that he spent the night along the way before completing the journey the following day. Look at verse 52. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said, your son will live. 
He could have made the trip home immediately. And I imagine every anxious person in here and certainly every parent in here would have immediately made that trip home. Nothing would have stopped you. You would have walked all night to get to that door to find out, is he there? But his life-giving faith in Jesus was so strong that he entrusted his dying son to the words of the Savior and went to bed. Friends, are you living your life in such a way that your beliefs depend on Jesus' words being true? His faith was so strong that as a result of the healing, John tells us the father and all of his household believed, verse 53. And he himself believed in all of his household. That doesn't mean that they were converted because he was converted. Now this man actually becomes the evangelist to his family, just like the woman in Samaria had become the evangelist to her town and community. And you can imagine the father's story as he's recounting what happened to his son and the rest of his family. Son, you were sick. You were really sick. And I thought you were going to die. My money didn't help. My position didn't help. My government didn't help. My connections didn't help. No doctor helped. There was nothing that I could do. I didn't know what to do. But I'd heard a story about a miracle worker in Galilee who had done some great things, so I just, I went to see him. But he didn't do what I thought that he would do. He didn't do what I thought I needed. He did something better than I thought that I needed. And as he talked to me, I believed in his words. And he, when he looked at me and said, go, your son will live, I knew that you would live. And I believed and because of him and that belief, you are alive today. And you can believe too. Friends, you can believe too. John concludes this story by noting that this was the second sign that Jesus performed at Cana. Verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea and Galilee. A sign that teaches us that life-giving faith believes. It believes in Jesus' words. And as this man became an evangelist to his family, so friends, fellow Christians in the room, you are to be the evangelist to your family. And what season of the year is better for you to talk easily about the gospel of Jesus Christ? I need everybody to look up for a moment. I know the holidays are hard. They're hard because people aren't at the table that are supposed to be at the table. They're hard because there are people at the table that you don't want to be at the table. They're hard because you're not going to get some of the things that you really want. They're hard because other people got things that you wanted. But here's the thing. The holidays aren't about any of that. The holiday is about Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Jesus came so that people might have life-giving faith in his name. And God has deployed you to your families. He has called you to faith in Christ. And he has strategically placed you in all of the families you're in. Your in-laws need Jesus too. And your sister-in-law needs Jesus too. And your crazy Uncle Larry needs Jesus too. They need you to be the evangelist of the family, telling them about Christ crucified for sinners. And if you don't tell them, who will? Somebody else who will have the hard conversation that you don't want to have? The awkward moment that is difficult for you? God has placed you in your family so that you might share this good news. 
Life-giving faith believes. Life-giving faith believes in Jesus. My friends, do you believe in his word? Do you believe so confidently in his word that you live your life as if his word, as if your life depended on his word? From Cana to Cana, John has taught us that life-giving faith believes as he has highlighted the profundity of Jesus' positive reception among an unlikely people, inbred Jews in Samaria, and now a Gentile in Capernaum. But John has told us that he has written his gospel in such a way that it might solicit life-giving faith from those who would find themselves interacting with this Jesus. The very verses that we read at the beginning of our time together in chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. It's not that he didn't do them. It's not that they're not impressive. John says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The irony from Cana to Cana, the irony from John 2 to John 4, is that Jesus solicits faith among the most unlikely people, and for that, we should all be immensely thankful. It's not the guy who looks like he has it all together, Nicodemus, the great teacher of the law, It's the inbred lady whose life is falling apart. It's the Roman centurion oppressing God's people. It's the person who's so desperate that they have nowhere else to turn today except to Jesus. And friends, perhaps that's why you came today. You're so desperate you don't know where to turn. You can turn to Jesus. Jesus will forgive. Jesus is merciful. He might not make all of your circumstances better in this life but he offers you something better than this life could have ever offered you in the first place. Jesus is the Christ of God. And we should be immensely thankful that he goes to these unlikely people because such were some of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. We pray that you would help us to rejoice and to sing, to give praise and to exalt to declare the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light, to be grateful that he has not saved us unto ourselves, that he has placed us among his people. Father, we thank you for your church. Build your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the mission of your church. And Father, we pray for those among us today who are not yet Christians. May the word that they heard today agitate them to the point that they ask questions about Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, that they might be born again by the Spirit of God. And Father, we pray for all Christians here today that they would be encouraged that this Jesus gives us something better than what we want or think that we need. And life-giving faith believes in him. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?